0: Listeners, welcome to another edition of The Learning Curve. It is your Wednesday, which means it's time for Gerard and I to shoot the breeze, talk about education, and interview somebody really cool. Gerard, how are you doing today?
1: I'm doing well in wet, wonderful Charlottesville. When we spoke last week, I believe it was in the 80s. I was working on my tan, and that is not what I'm doing today. But (laughs) glad to be with you always. It's always a sunny day one way or another.
0: Yes, I too. You you always bring sunshine to my day. It's rainy here too. I have to say though, lately I've been thinking we must both be really old because we like talking about the weather. (laughs) Do you realize? I'm like, if I talk about the weather, all like the first thing I do in the morning is like, hey Google, what's the weather today? I used to always like criticize my father for watching the weather channel constantly, and now I get it. So kind of scary, Gerard. Oh, Google's talking to me. I just want everybody to know if you heard that in the background, she answered. (laughs) 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 We're not even gonna cut that out. All right, Gerard, I have a question for you as I open this week. Given your vast experience, I would like to know how much stock you put in these things called U.S. News and World Report rankings, whether it's rankings of schools, rankings of colleges. Where do you stand on the rankings business?
1: In a scale of one to 10, I put an eight because I know deans at different professional schools who use that as a guide to figure out what they can do to go up one or two points so personally, I have seen it make a big difference. For me, when I was looking at grad schools, it made a difference. And then third, I take an example from Northeastern University. I had a president several years ago who moved the school like 40 points up the U.S. News and World Report ranking. And there was an entire story on it because the president decided to be a data-driven person. So for me, it's an eight for others may maybe a two.
0: All right. Okay. Yeah, I know. I mean, it's sort of controversial, but I feel like, in my opinion, so you know folks that use it, but I feel like the public sort of wakes up to this stuff too. So whether we think that the rankings are fair or not, or we like the algorithm that the user, whatever it is, it's something that gets a lot of attention. And I think that that's important. And I bring this up because this morning in the Boston Globe, is an article about the fact that the 2022 rankings for the best high schools in the country is out. And I got to tell you, I was drawn immediately to it. I texted our producer, Jamie Gass, early in the morning because I was trying to think of like of all the stories I can talk about this week. And this one for me brings together some stuff that I've been thinking about both nationally, but also going to get a little Massachusetts centric for a minute. So In this article, it highlights that the states with the best high schools by many measures, right, like performance and AP access and all these things are, of course, number one, let's always pat ourselves on the back. We are Massachusetts, Connecticut, and number three, which, drumroll, Massachusetts people don't like to hear. Florida, (laughs) (laughs) just consistently, and I'm sure it's because you were chief there at one point, but that, you know, Florida is this state that it doesn't matter what ranking you're looking at. There are a couple states that are consistently moving up in these measures, right? Now, here's the thing. Of course, being who I am, I home right in on Massachusetts, and I want to see, so what are the best school districts? What are the schools that really stand out? Gerard. It's not going to surprise you to know, but boy, did it really make me angry to know that. The best high schools in the state of Massachusetts break down along these lines, and I'm talking here top 20, broad stroke, don't worry, I'm not going to go through all of them. They are the exam schools in the Boston public schools, and kiss your brain because I'm going to talk about, I'm going to rant about that in just a minute. They are number two, charter schools. In Boston, mainly, there are a couple that are not, but charter schools just predominantly factored into these best high school ratings. And they are wealthy suburban districts, which in Massachusetts mean they start with a W usually, because (laughs) it's Weston and Wellesley and actually Lexington made it in there. But here's the thing that really gets me, Gerard. So in people listening who are in states with magnet schools and exam schools, I'm not saying that they're a bad thing. I think they can be a great thing. But here in the city of Boston, as I've talked about previously, and we had a good friend, Charlie Chippio on to talk about this as well. We have been just trying to bang the drum about these huge disparities that exist within the district. Right. So this got me to thinking, I'm going to pull up the MCAS results. And that's our state test for what was cited as like the best high school in basically the country but certainly in massachusetts and that is the boston latin school which has been around since obviously the beginning of time and it's a very (laughs) it's a very boston Brahminy school but this is a school as i've said in the past a lot of people will send their kids to private pre-k through five schools and then try and get into one of these prestigious boston exam schools and if you look at the results for a school like this right on mcas scores the students at these schools who are meeting or exceeding expectations in Boston's premier exam school. You're up in the 78%, you're up in the 83%. Like these kids are knocking it out of the park. Gerard, if you look at our Boston high schools, meaning the schools that kids either, they don't test into, they get some degree of choice, but they're mainly assigned to, kids are scoring in the 28%. 30 range in terms of the percentage meeting or exceeding expectations on our MCAS scores. And this ties into something that I've been wanting to talk about because we've been banging the drum and saying, how can it be that there are these huge disparities within one district and the vast majority of kids are shoved into these schools that are just drastically underperforming? Well, part of the reason is because Oftentimes when folks say like, look at the Boston public schools, they're so great. What they're doing is they're factoring in the wonderful MCAS scores from some of these very high performing exam schools. And Gerard, if you can't tell, this just gets under my skin to no end. (laughs) So I might use this platform to talk about it again and again and again. And so as much as I do appreciate U.S. News and World Report rankings, and I think that they can shine a little light on something, I think the big takeaway for me here was, wow, here you've got a couple really wealthy districts. And by the way, charter schools, which are serving kids who are not coming from backgrounds like the ones in these very wealthy districts, where homes are probably the average home in a lot of these places, is close to, if not above a million dollars, Gerard. Yet- they are getting similar results. And here we are, not only with charter schools on the rails, you know, we talked about this last week, not going to get federal startup funds and stuff, but Massachusetts loves to hate charter schools as well. So I just want a little bit of a shout out, or I don't know, just a shout maybe is what I'm doing. (laughs) Some of our education leaders here in the Commonwealth to say, Pat yourselves on the back for some of these rankings, but pat yourselves on the back for having really excellent charter schools. And please, 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 can we take a hard look at the disparities within that are right in our backyard in BPS? So, Gerard, I am done. I invite you, please, <laughs> <laughs> to rebut anything that I have just said.
1: Question. So if Massachusetts first, Connecticut second, Florida third, where's Virginia?
0: Oh, Friend, I, I didn't look that far.
1: <laughs> ah, and, and there's the point. Look that far. So let me start with a few points. When I think about rankings of high schools, I always think about my American Enterprise Institute colleague, Nat Malkus. And he identified that if you look at the top performing traditional public schools, magnet schools, charter schools, exam schools, others, They have a lot of things in common. One in particular is usually that 100% of the students are taking AP courses. So there's already something built in in terms of having an AP course. I mentioned that because last fall, when I had an opportunity to go to uh, JEB's National Education Conference in Florida, I moderated a panel that focused on looking at issues of equity. And we had the current interim CEO for Education Trust who made a really good point, really several points, but she was saying one of the challenges that schools that serve low-income students have is they often don't have access to a lot of AP courses. Even if the student's bright, guess what, your GPA and your transcript will look less competitive to a college. And so she was bringing in an aspect of AP we overlook. So when I think of U.S. News and World Report, I think of Matt, but I also think about the AP component. So that's number one. Number two, it's not a shock that the best schools tend to be those that focus and work with talented students. Remember, as much as people say that charter schools aren't public, they overlook the fact that public exam schools, in fact, many of them have tests to get in. A lot of charter schools, in fact, do not have a test to get in. A number of magnet schools have a test to get in. number of charter schools do not have a test to get in so in some ways charter schools are actually more democratic than some of the exam and magnet schools that we compare them to but i'm glad we have exam schools i'm glad we have specialty schools but those schools are going to do well for a long time you bring up something we often overlook and that's wealth and household income the number one school choice program is where you choose to move and buy a house and where you choose to buy a house it's going to impact where you go to school approximately 83 percent of the students in the public school sector go to a school that they're zoned for and so there's a correlation between zoning income and outcomes but let's also give a shout out and i'm glad you gave a shout out to charter schools Let me also give a shout out to a school in virginia it's called richmond community school Uh, started in the 1970s it is the only public high school in virginia and one of few in the country dedicated to taking gifted students many of them who are african-american and many of them who come from financially challenged backgrounds you and i've talked on this show about how many gifted students find themselves overlooked? The assumption is if you're gifted, you're great. Of course, everything's made for you. We know that's not the case because a number of gifted students also find themselves with an IEP uh, 504. And we also know that many of them get lost in the shuffle. There are many gifted students who find themselves in juvenile justice facilities as well as in prison. But you have Richmond Community School, which has a great college going rate The number of alumni who are doing great things are wonderful. And it's a school that proves that you can take smart students who are low income and do well. But this program also shows, when you look at high schools like charter schools that take students who are qualified for a free reduced price lunch, but are amongst the best students in the state, it just goes to show that poverty doesn't have to be a proxy for destiny, but we can't overlook the fact that at the end of the day, this is a game of thrones. And depending upon who you think you are and what family you belong to, we'll decide who's going to sit on the throne and who's not. So, your story also got me pretty excited. And I'm glad to see it out there. There are people who say all kinds of things about it. But I tell you what, when families are looking to buy a house, They go to places like this. So let me give a shout out to US News and World Report and for all the drama they're gonna get for having the audacity (laughs) to rank schools.
0: There you go, Game of Thrones, I love it.
1: So my story is a little different. We've talked a lot about the pandemic and the impact that it's had on teachers. We know a lot of teachers are not doing well, either because of lack of support, own personal, professional challenges. But one thing we don't talk about is a term in the education space uh, where we talk about contract abandonment. And the reason we don't talk about it is we often don't get into the nuance of teacher licensing. So this story is from Texas. There is a teacher who's a second grade leader. She joined the profession six years ago and she joined the teaching profession. She's an elementary school teacher because she wanted to help students. Well, for the last two years, she's like, wait a minute, I'm going to be teaching online for quite some time. And so Stacy decided, you know what? I'm going to do something different. I'm going to actually leave the profession and I'm going to pursue something else. But she decided I'm going to wait until the end of the school year to leave. Is that because she didn't want to leave her students behind? Possibly. Is it because she didn't want to put her principal in a bad spot? Possibly. Is it because she's got a great education program to end the year, and then she will see that done, and then she will leave the profession altogether? Possibly. But one thing she also said is that if I leave in the middle of the school year, I may find my license revoked. And so she's like, I'm not going to do it. But Stacy is one example. At the same time she decided to stay in the profession, guess what? Over 500 teachers have decided to leave. And in response to leaving in the middle of the school year, there have been at least 471 claims filed with the State Board of Education Certification in Texas to say, wait a minute, my teacher left in the middle of the school year, he or she broke their contract or contract abandonment. Well, what does that mean? Well, at least in the state of Texas, they created in 1995, a State Board for Educator Certification. And the legislature actually created it because they wanted to recognize school educators as professionals, and they wanted to grant educators the authority to prove and move forward with standards. The board has 15 members; 11 are voting members appointed by the governor to six-year terms. Four are classroom teachers, one's a counselor, two are administrators, and four citizens. There are four non-voting members who also serve on the board. The governor appoints a dean of education and a person who has experience working with alternative education programs. The commission of education appoints a staff member from the Texas Education Agency, their state board. Commission of higher education appoints a staff member as well. So they make the decision when they receive a claim from an independent school district to say, you know what, Gerard left the profession in the middle of the school year and he did so without cost. Or better yet, with good cause. Now, in the state of Texas, good cause means you can leave the profession without punishment, meaning loss of your certification, if it's for health reasons or if the spouse is getting a job in a different city or if you're even going to transfer schools within the state. But if you're leaving for, as some teachers say, health challenges, some are leaving because they've gotten fed up with the way things are going, right now that does not fall under the good cause claim. And so you have attorneys who are working in Texas who said they haven't seen in number of years this many people leaving the profession. And some of them are leaving, nor are they going to lose their license, which means at least in Texas, if you lose your license, there's at least one year where you can't teach. And if you do so in the middle of the year, there's a good chance you're going to lose one academic year and half of the other. But according to the reporter, Some of the teachers said, I simply don't care. I'm not coming back to the profession. I'm fed up and I'm leaving. So there are a couple of takeaways for the listeners. Number one, if you wanna learn more about contract abandonment and reasons why people are leaving the profession, in this case, your state board of education certification in Texas is one example. In other states, that information or that authority is under the Department of Education. So take a look there because when people are leaving, they're leaving for different reasons. Number two, if state legislatures are thinking about ways of keeping a teachers in the profession, maybe we have to give some thought to what includes good cause. Do we put in frustration? Well, maybe not, that's a contractual challenge, but maybe we should broaden the definition to give teachers an opportunity to say, you know what, I'm gonna leave for a year. But I want to come back and I like to come back and teach, but I just need time off. So one of the few stories where we had an opportunity to talk about regulation and law, but it's something that I found interesting and interesting getting your thoughts. Oh, in fact, I should mention this as well. You can also have your license suspended and not taken away. So there's also that option. So. I'll stop there.
0: I would just say real quick, Gerard, that what's amazing to me about this is in a time when everybody's thinking, oh my gosh, oh my gosh, teacher pipelines, what are we going to do to attract teachers? And some are thinking about retention. But most of the new laws we're seeing are all about pipeline and growing new teachers. And I love this idea that we need to think about making the profession more sustainable for people. And it's really troublesome that it took a pandemic to get us there. We could go on about this for quite a while, but you know, Gerard, we've got a phenomenal guest actually waiting in the wings for us here. So we are going to be talking really quick, coming up, with Dr. Wilfried Schmid, and he is the Dwight Parker Robinson Emeritus Professor of Mathematics at Harvard University. So let's try and put our math caps on. Mine's not very big, Gerard. It's not. It's going to be kind of tough. Anyway, coming up right after this. (music) Learning Curve listeners, please help me welcome Dr. Wilfried Schmid. He is the Dwight Parker Robinson Professor of Mathematics at Harvard University. He's a leader in the representation theory of lie groups and gave the first construction of the discrete series and proved Blattner's conjecture. In a minute, he's going to, I hope, tell me what all that means. Professor Schmid's work on Hodge theory has produced wide-ranging applications. In 1960, Schmid entered the undergraduate program at Princeton University, graduating with an A.B. in mathematics. He received his Ph.D. in mathematics in 1967 from the University of California at Berkeley. After three years as an assistant professor at Berkeley, he became professor of mathematics at Columbia University. He moved to Harvard University in 1978. In addition to his research interests, he became involved in K-12 mathematics education after a disturbing incident in his daughter's second grade class. Professor Schmid went on to play a major role in the drafting of the 2000 Massachusetts Mathematics Curriculum Framework and served on the U.S. National Mathematics Advisory Panel in 2008. Professor Schmid, welcome to The Learning Curve. Thank you. I'm very happy to have you, and I am curious to know about the experience with your daughter that led you into drafting the mathematics standards for Massachusetts, but let's start with you first, because you grew up in Germany, and you have obviously had a remarkable academic career here in the U.S. Could you talk a little bit about your interest in mathematics at a young age, and how you were taught math in German schools growing up?
2: Well, there are some significant differences between German and U.S. schools. Beginning in grade five, there were three different school types in Germany. The least ambitious and least prepared students continued to go to the same school they had attended before for an additional five years. In the middle were students who went into professions that required better preparation. They attended separate schools that went up to grade 10, if I recall correctly. And the top-level schools were staffed by teachers who taught only two or three subjects for a total of 13 years of schooling. These top-level schools provided preparation for higher education. Teachers at these top-level schools were trained at universities, followed by a period of two or three years as apprentice teachers. But even teachers at the two lower levels of schools tended to be better prepared than beginning teachers in the U.S. All my male teachers, and most of my teachers were indeed male, had returned from World War II and prisoner of war camps. That experience tended to make them more tolerant of dissent from students. I certainly argued with my teachers in ways that would not be tolerated by U.S. teachers. My father was a professor of Latin and Greek, and so I attended a school that emphasized the teaching of Latin and ancient Greek. Mathematics was very much an afterthought. But nonetheless, mathematics was taught well in general. One of my parents' neighbors was the most prominent mathematician in Germany at that time. And when he heard that I did not think I learned enough mathematics in school, that mathematician gave me private lessons. That was truly remarkable. The most prominent German mathematician volunteering to offer mathematics lessons to a high school student. To some extent, I became intensely interested in mathematics as a result of that experience.
0: That's really quite amazing to have such a prominent mathematician as a tutor. So you've got your own international experience. But you have taught here at Harvard and other elite universities, and you've already given us a hint as to the differences between the system you grew up in and the American system. I think it's really interesting that you could dialogue with your teachers in Germany and didn't have the same experience here. Can you talk a little bit about, comparatively, at a place like Harvard, for example, what you see in terms of preparation, academic preparation coming From students from other countries versus the students who are, by every definition, elite, who are admitted to Harvard. Can you talk about the differences in what you see?
2: First of all, you mentioned Russia, and I believe their school system was similar to the German system. Singapore did an excellent job in teaching students by making teaching a revered and very well-paid profession. The Singapore Ministry of Education entrusted the writing of textbooks to the most experienced teachers and those Singapore textbooks are excellent. By tradition in China, teaching is the deeply valued profession. Indian society is highly stratified and the Indian students we see in the US typically come from castes that vary that value education highly
0: it's fascinating that you can locate those differences. Now, I mentioned at the outset that you had an experience at your daughter's school that prompted you to really look at K-12 mathematics standards and curriculum. I would love for you to describe for our listeners what that experience was. And then can you talk a little bit about the experience of, I mean, this is in the year 2000. So Massachusetts was sort of on the leading edge of state's that were even thinking about curriculum standards. This was new at the time. If states had them, they certainly weren't putting them to good use. So I'm curious about how you got there, the experience that led you to this work, and then what the work itself was like.
2: Well, at that time, I lived in Lincoln, Massachusetts. My wife and I chose to live in Lincoln, in part because the Lincoln School District had the highest per capita student spending in Massachusetts. It was also politically liberal. My wife and I assumed that these attributes would make for good schools. To some extent, that was the case, but not in math in grades K through 5. The Lincoln schools had chosen a program called Investigations in Numbers, Data, and Space. That program sustained the learning of what are called number facts purposely omitting the teaching of wrong addition and uh, multiplication algorithms, and relied heavily on so-called manipulatives, that means tiles, measuring pictures, measuring tapes, etc. cetera. I should say that I was dissatisfied with the Lincoln schools mostly because of their K-5 through mathematics program. The Crimson, the Harvard student newspaper, published an op-ed piece that I had written in which I criticized the teaching of math in the Lincoln schools. Then the New York Times published a very long article on K-12 education that also mentioned my disagreement with the Lincoln K-5 schools. That brought me to the attention of other mathematicians who are interested in K-12 mathematics education. At the time, the Massachusetts Mathematics Standards which is a document that describes what should be taught in various grades, were to be revised. The Committee of Massachusetts Teachers had written a first draft in line with the ideas of the so-called reform curricula, including investigations in numbers, data, and states. Stotsky, the Deputy Commissioner of Education, and to a lesser extent, the Massachusetts Commissioner of Education, David Driscoll, were unhappy with the draft. They contacted a Stanford mathematician, James Milgram, who had been very heavily involved in the California math wars, which preceded the Massachusetts math wars. He suggested that Stotsky and Driscoll contact me, they did, And it asked me to revise the first draft of the Massachusetts curriculum framework.
1: Well, let's take the math wars discussion just a step further. So when you were working on Massachusetts state standards at this time, we've got to remember that there were very unique features about mathematics standards in that state that not only led the state to being a national leader on NAEP going back to 2005, but it also became really the only state that globally could compete on an international level as related to science and math testing, including TIMSS and PISA. Talk to us about the math wars, both sides of the fence, and how you were able to help Massachusetts achieve global success.
2: Well, to be fair to the math education reformers whom I opposed, the school system in the U.S., had not been successful in teaching math. But it would have made sense to look at other countries that managed to do well in math education and try to emulate them. Instead, the reformers tried to homegrown, untested ideas. It's true that Massachusetts was doing better in mathematics teaching than other states. However, the Massachusetts state standards are only one reason why the state does so well, It's a state with two of the top U.S. universities and many top medical research facilities. These institutions attract a lot of domestic and foreign talent, and then in particular parents to whom education is very important.
1: You mentioned Boston really being a hub for what I would call brain power. When you look at magazines and other articles about the smartest states in America or the smartest cities, Massachusetts or from a city perspective, Boston will often finish number one just because of the number of people in the city. And yet, when you look at Boston public schools, math results really aren't that great. And there's conversation now about receivership, which my uh, colleague Kara has written about recently. But let's just use that state and even Boston as an example There's a really big debate over why the American K-12 system is so unwavering in implementing true math reform. Is it bureaucratic? Is it ideological? What do you see as the roadblock?
2: Unlike in science and medicine, accurate countrywide comparative studies in education are almost impossible to construct because different state standards specify various times when various topics should be taught. The U.S. K-12 education reformers were well-intentioned, but most of them did not look beyond U.S. borders to see what works. Instead, they kept trying out various ideas that looked new and exciting, but turned out not to be successful.
1: The idea of America looking beyond its borders be it across the Atlantic or the Pacific Ocean or even going north and south has been a really big challenge. Uh, I know you have links to Germany many years ago had a chance to travel to what was then east and west Germany shortly after the fall of the Berlin Wall to look at the k-12 and the higher education system and they talked about the apprenticeship program and they also mentioned the the three things you had mentioned earlier, but the system really focused on the importance of thinking in mathematical ways, not simply to pass a test, but to be able to function in society. You're at Harvard now, Dr. Paul Peterson convened a group of scholars, domestic and international to come and talk about student achievement while I ended up meeting the principal of the highest performing math high school in China. And when I went to visit China, he provided me an opportunity to go to the school and meet people. Other countries are making this a priority, and you're identifying some of the challenges as why we can't. But let me go to my next question, because it's much more fundamental. You've talked about Algebra 1 being a gateway course to higher level math. And yet we have a number of students who find themselves going into high school without algebra or leaving without algebra. In 2008, you were a member of the prestigious U.S. Mathematics Advisory Panel, that interview, which reviewed more than 16,000 research publications and policies on the topic. Similar question, even after the work you did at NMAP, what can Americans do to really push the idea of teaching students even basic mathematics?
2: If I recall correctly, it was Laura Bush, the wife of George W. Bush, who convinced her husband to make education a priority and to appoint the National Mathematics Advisory Panel. The members included psychologists interested in how children learn, mathematics educators, and mathematicians interested in math education. It would take far too long to enumerate all the conclusions of the panel, but let me enumerate the main points the importance of a clear progression of topics. Typically, in US schools, mathematical topics would be repeated year after year. Instead, the panel suggested each topic should be taught once with adequate depth. Since school mathematics is a cumulative subject, topics that were covered in prior years would come up again implicitly, and that makes revisiting the subject really unnecessary. The importance of preschool, again, that was one of the main points of the National Math Panel, the importance of preschool to alleviate the difference between children of different backgrounds. And then there was the issue of adequate preparation of teachers, including, in particular, teachers in the early grades. A common misconception is the idea, I mean, a common misconception in the U.S. is the idea that To quote, if you know how to teach, you can teach anything, unquote. No, that's just not the case. You cannot teach what you do not understand yourself. Then at the time of the panel, cheap pocket calculators had become available. The panel strongly suggested that calculators should not be used in the early grades because that hindered the learning of what's known as the number factor. Then, U.S. textbooks typically were far too long. And this related to the issue of repeating topics year after year, of course. Then, the importance of national testing. At the time, state assessment tests were common, but their quality varied greatly, making it very difficult to compare the effectiveness of various state curriculum guidelines. I have to say, that the conclusion of the panel, even though well-founded, were widely ignored. If I look at my Harvard colleagues, roughly half of them received primary and secondary education in other countries. That fact has surely several explanations. One of them certainly is the poor state of U.S. K-12 mathematics education.
1: very good point about the international dynamic of those who go into the PhD program for mathematics. Here's just an, an ending question for you. Title IX is 50 years old this year. Part of the push was to make sure that we understood the role of gender, the role that women played in academics. Today, at least at the undergrad level, we have 2 million more women in college than men. We have more women who enrolled in STEM today than 50 years ago. And their number of STEM teachers we now have who are women. When we look at the PhD level for mathematics, numbers moving in, the, in a better direction than 50 years ago, but surely not as high as we have for men. There's also a a domestic dynamic of trying to get more American students to also pursue a PhD in education independent of race. From your years of experience as a researcher, as an educator, and having looked at this subject, uh, the K-12 level and and beyond, what are a couple of recommendations that policymakers, deans at colleges of arts and sciences, ed schools, what should we be thinking about to make sure we have more women earning PhDs in mathematics as well as American students doing the same?
2: Well, I mean, that's a very confounding issue. I cannot really say why there are so many more men in mathematics at American universities than women. I just have no explanation, but it is the case. And it is the case in spite of attempts to how should I say, get more women involved in academic mathematics. The Harvard Mathematics Department, the vast majority of members is men, and in spite of efforts that we've made to recruit women.
1: Absolutely. Thank you so much for spending time with us. Continue the good work and know that you have a platform here in the future to get the message out about the importance of mathematics. Thank you. Take care.
0: Listeners, we always leave you with the tweet of the week. And this one from a former guest, Barry Weiss. I mean, who isn't talking about Elon Musk in Twitter right now? But she says... Free speech is the bedrock of a functioning democracy, and Twitter is the digital town square where it matters. Twitter gives me hives. I'm not going to say <laughs> for a variety of reasons, but I think that uh, this is a very important point. Listeners, next week, we're going to be speaking with Dr. Eric Hanyashek. I think you might know him. He is at the Hoover Institution of Stanford University, and boy, oh boy, he's got a lot of accolades, internationally recognized for his economic analysis of educational issues, among so many other things. Until then, Gerard, take really good care of yourself. I can't wait to be back with you again next week.
1: Sounds good.